to Something for the Turbo, the new weekly podcast brought to you by Unfound, the global platform for the travel-loving cyclist. Welcome to episode two of the Something for the Turbo podcast. We've got a cracking show for you today. If you listened last week and enjoyed it, make sure you've subscribed and make sure you tell all your cycling friends as well. Furthermore, please, if you haven't done it yet, download the Unfound app and join our global community of cyclists from around the world, sharing all things cycling from rides to photos to articles and much, much more. We're really looking to build a a global community of travel loving cyclists and the more people we can get on there, the more content we can get on there, the better. Today, I'm very excited to have a great friend of mine, a cycling teammate, Alex Stops, joining me on the show. Alex is a mechanical engineer living in Asia. He's been a mountain biker. More recently, he's a road cyclist. He's worked in aeronautical engineering. He's worked in automotive engineering. He's worked in the cycling industry as well. He's a fascinating guy. I love the way he looks at things from an engineering and scientific background, and we'd really hope you enjoy the chat that we had with him today any questions feel free to email us you can get us on contact at unfound.cc that's contact at unfound.cc alex thanks very much for joining me it's good to have you on here how you doing yeah very well thanks jules desperately missing you since your departure from hot and humid hong kong but um we'll all, we'll all get know, it. it's, it's all been kicking off since i left it has it's got some problems at the moment but you know, I'm sure like every city has its ebbs and flows and hopefully it'll all get fixed in the near future. But um, the main thing is we're just missing you. That's why the city's in turmoil, mate. <laughs> I'm not sure quite that's quite true. But uh, thanks for joining us. As I said, no I was keen to get you on here, mainly because I found your insight into aerodynamics and, and all things engineering since we've been racing for the last couple of years. Pretty fascinating. We were just chatting before we uh, got online and you obviously very kindly listened to the first episode with Abdullah and have been running your engineering mind and brain over his epic Trans Am performance. And yeah, it's quite fascinating to hear some of your thoughts around where maybe gains could be made or or, or changes. And although I found it interesting to, to hear you say that, you know, I know he said that he felt that anyone can do Trans Am or an epic. It's some some feat to do that, isn't it? physically well mentally. yeah i mean first of all i just want to say congratulations to abdullah it's, a, it's an amazing feat to win that massive race by over a thousand kilometers from second place i mean riding 6800 kilometers in a moving time of just 13 days is incredible and i know you and i both said no way we couldn't do that and abdullah keeps saying oh, anyone can do it anyone can do it you know but so i, I definitely think i couldn't do it and it you know, it's easy for me to sit here and say, oh, yes, you know, we'll analyze his, his performance and his numbers. And actually, I have to say, it's been quite hard to find the information on the Trans Am. I don't think he's actually had that much kind of like media coverage after he won that race, considering what a feat and how it completely smashed the record. Yeah. And yeah, also, so it's actually surprising how much, how, how little uh, coverage there's been from your yeah. kind of normal cycling outlets of, of, of his feat. And it just really is amazing. And, He's a big lad as well, and it must have been quite a physical uh, torture for him to go through that. I mean, he's probably about the same size as me or even heavier, and I'm, I'm getting on for 90 kilos. So, yeah, uh, it's good to see another a big guy do something massive in cycling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, doing it for the big lads out there. Yeah. 
But I mean, yeah, like I said, it, it, it's 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 very easy to me to sit here with my like scribbles and calculator and say oh, I could have gone faster by this much, I could have saved watts here and there. And I know actually he said I didn't use a power meter because it would just be like a mental torture device to keep staring at power numbers every day. And you know when you're having a low moment the last thing you want to see is you, you 20 or 30 40 watts under your average power that you need to sustain for you know 16 days or whatever it is but it's interesting you know that we, we talk about marginal gains in in mainstream racing cycling you know uh, the grand tours and time trials and you know classics and you know stage races but we don't really talk about marginal gains in ultra distance cycling and actually no. I, say, I don't like the term marginal gains because no one just goes after one marginal gain. And I think they should be called significant gains because if you take a sum of marginal gains, they do become significant, which is why, you know, I'm not going to keep saying like Sky and Ineos and whatever, but or bridge cycling, but people who pioneered the term really understand it. And it is actually significant. So I think we need to get away from marginal now and start calling them significant or sum of marginal gains equals significant gains or something like that. But yeah, I mean, I don't, like I said, I don't think ultra distance cycling has really come at it from the same angle because, you know, I think a lot of athletes out there know it's more of a, a mental challenge rather than a physical. Obviously, the physical demands of riding for that long constantly are, are huge. But I think a lot of them think, right, it's just going to be a mental challenge. And, and the bike setup and the kit choice and things like aerodynamics kind of come come second. So I suppose marginal gains in terms of what, what the World Tour teams are doing for something like an ultra event, Really, the sum of all those marginal games could be far greater. It could be absolutely huge. Well, exactly right. You've hit, you've hit the nail on the head. Basically, the, the longer the distance the event, the, the bigger the cumulative effect. So the differences and the gains just become way more pronounced. I mean, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to bore everyone with calculations. And these are like really rough kind of back of the fag packet calculations that I scribbled down. But, you know, Abdullah... The guy did 6,800 kilometers, 4,200 miles, isn't it? Something like that, 4,200 miles in a moving time of just under 13 days, 12 days, 23 hours. You know, that's incredible. Like to ride that long with only, I think, three days of rest is incredible. And when you consider, you know, he's a big guy, he's carrying all of his kit, he's, he's completely self-supported. To average the average speed that equates to is about around 22 kilometers an hour. It, it is quite mind-blowing. And if you look at, or if you try and cap, he didn't ride with the power meter, but if you try and calculate his average power, roughly I've estimated it to be about 105 watts. Now, for most people, that sounds pretty low, but when you consider you're doing that for like 19, 20 hours a day, it's not too bad. And that considers, you know, flattening the course out. You're taking all the time when you're coasting, doing zero watts, you know, that's bringing your average power down. So maybe he's doing. Which is always low, right? So that's way lower than exactly. normalized. So. Exactly. Just, just for, for us laymans, you, you mentioned it sort of on the back of a fag packet, but how do you roughly try and calculate something like that? Well, you, you, it's, there's, there's a number of things you've got to take into account. Like I had to guess his rolling resistance. I had to guess frontal area, coefficient of drag based on, based on his bike setup. And there are other things you have to take into account, like air density, temperature that, go, that goes into that humidity. But, you know, there, there's some helpful calculators online and some, and some spreadsheets that I made ages ago that we can estimate, uh, you know, average power for, for flat terrain, basically, based on yeah. rolling resistance and air resistance. And it, it is, it's the laws, laws of physics. You can't change the formula. So once you define the variables, it actually becomes quite simple just to plug in new numbers and see what comes out. So if, let's say, he did, well, I can, I don't I hypothesize, he did do 22 kilometers an hour average to finish in the time he did when he was moving and wasn't sleeping. I've equated that to around 105 watts. Now, 
like I said, it doesn't seem a lot, but considering you're doing it 20 hours a day, uh, you're taking into account all the times when you're not pedaling, like you're coasting down those long hills in some parts of, you know, Kentucky or whatever, then it is quite significant. Um, but I, I've just been looking at like his bike setup, what he was wearing. I've noticed a few pictures of him online wearing like a high-vis jacket. I mean, that's great. Safety comes first. You don't want to be hit from behind by a driver. But he's riding in like a builder's vest. It's flapping in the wind. He's got a jersey, uh, a jumper tucked around his waist, like tied around his waist. Now, he's got a bar bag on the front of his bike. That's fine. Obviously, you need, you need a lot of luggage to be self-supported over 16 days. You need to be comfortable. You need to have enough kit. But moving that bag to the back of the bike to like elongate the aero, aero cord length of the bike, as you, as you would call it in aerospace engineering, to, to make the bike effectively longer behind the bluff body would save quite a lot of aero watts. Just like, you know, if you took, if you took a truck and, and you drove it down the highway at a constant speed with and without its trailer, it would actually use less fuel if it was at constant speed with its trailer. Or if like, okay, if you're, oh, if wow. you're from America... It's like a semi without its load. Okay, semi without its load uses more fuel because wow. yeah, it creates more more of a wake behind it. And if you can elongate that cord length of, of of the wing essentially behind the rider, then you can decrease some of the induced drag. So if he was to put all of his luggage behind like the saddle on on one of those long kind of seat post booms out behind him, I estimate he probably could have saved about seven watts even at twenty two k's an hour. Taking taking the rain cape off or the the builder's jacket could have saved him about six walks at 22 k's an hour. Changing from his lightweight climbing helmet to an aero road helmet, something like an S Works Evade helmet, probably would have saved about four four watts at 22 k's an hour. And I know this is pu- pushing the boat out because ultra ultra <laughs> ultra distance cycling, you do need a fair bit of kit and you need to be comfortable. But if he was to wear like a skin suit, he probably could have saved around six to seven watts at that speed as well. So all those things seem small, but when you consider how much they add up to his average power is quite a big proportion of his average power. If you do the calculation, as Sean Kelly would say, you could save, even if you just wore the aero helmet, like the S-Works of Aid, I calculated he could save about five hours on the finishing time. Now, five, five hours. hours. Five hours is, yeah, exactly. And that's what I'm thinking. These are not marginal gains when, when the distance becomes that long. And, you know, the duration of the event is that long. That's five hours more sleep. You know, that's five hours resting. That's incredible. And, and, and that's, just, that's, road... just, that's just by wearing the Aero Road Helmet over the standard Road Helmet. And even at 22Ks an hour, that's a massive difference. And actually, if you if you sum all of those wattage savings up that I told you, you end up saving around 23 watts over his baseline setup. And I know Abdullah, from what I've heard and what I've the interviews I've seen with him and I've followed him for a while and I, I know just 100% he's probably going to be shaking his head laughing at me just thinking like no no mate no mate you can't you can't just throw what's at me like you can't throw numbers at me because he's, he's not about that but it's significant if, if he was to save those 23 watts off his aero setup and this is this is a crazy calculation right but the mass should should be true he could have saved 24 hours off his time which is like wow. another day. It's another day. Like it could have finished even further in front of the competition. And uh, that's, that's, what, that's my point about marginal gains. Like, they're not marginal when the duration and the distance become so big. You know, it's, it's significant. I don't think any of those changes are, are massive. You know, it's going to be super interesting over the, over the next uh, year or two. I think we're seeing the ship, obviously, with the F education, big focus on things like Dirty Kanza, 
mm-hmm. uh, more more press towards things like transcontinental obviously first female winner today fiona absolutely amazing performance that, that we may see some of this science coming into some of the more the, the ultra distance riding potentially well I, I think it's about i think it's about time because if the guys and girls in those type of events are thinking about it the margins become huge between them and somebody who isn't thinking about these things the gaps just get bigger and bigger and bigger and you know we can we can approach this two different ways you you can go faster okay by having these aero wattage savings or you look at it from the other perspective you can go the same speed as you would have gone but using less power which means less fatigue which means less calories uh, less muscle damage and less I know in Abdullah's case, like less stress for the gut and the digestive system. And yeah. I've heard a lot about him saying in various interviews that, you know, really struggled with it, with his tummy. And every time he stopped, and I guess this is the same for a lot of the ultra distance cyclists, but every time he stopped, it was just buy as much food and eat as much as he could basically every time. And Abdullah is, is a, if if any of you know, he's, he, I think he's a vegan, right? He is, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I'm not going to get into the vegan debate, but... I'm not an expert on that, but I think in total, in general, I think in terms of energy density of food, so if you took you know, a volume of food, if you have a vegan diet, the number of calories in a set volume is probably lower than it is for somebody on a non-vegan diet. And it's, it's, if you have to eat more volume, maybe, I'm not an expert, like I said, you might have to eat more volume of certain things to get the same number of calories if you're on a non-vegan diet. And if you're increasing the volume as well, or you know, if, if you're in you know, the middle of south of the u.s and and you're in service stations which aren't catered for vegan diets you may just have to eat more and more volume if you can reduce the number of calories you need because you've lowered your power output need because if you've saved it on aero then you just have to eat less volume so it comes back it literally saving the aero what can save your tummy and it, it's all it's all it's all it's all linked so linked, isn't it? Fascinating. Exactly. yeah it's fascinating so essentially what i think we need to do is we need to get abdallah abdullah together with you so you can uh, work on the science behind his 24-hour oh, attempt. No, no, mate, I'd be, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd be ashamed. I, I'd be ashamed. I, 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 he probably won't be able to get out on his crazy training ride or something and I'd, you know, survive for about four hours before I had to stop and have a Big Mac. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> but you can, you can help him with a 24-hour attempt in terms of the aerodynamics around that. Oh, yeah. I think, I think it, the irony of it is, right, is when the distance and, and the intensity, when the distance comes down and the intensity goes up, I think people do naturally think more about the bike setup and the aerodynamic. But actually, it's when the intensity goes down a little bit and the distance goes through the roof, like with Ultra, is when it really matters. You know, like those are when the, the differences in first and second become massive. And, you know, it's just, like I said, if, if he's prepared to, to ride slower or at the same speed and save those, those aero watts, it's less fatigue, possibly more sleep, less muscle damage, less stress to the body. So there's two ways you can look at it. That's interesting. And I know that you've you've spent some time working in the cycling industry yourself. What what are your sort of thoughts and views on on current bike trends? You, I mean, a lot of the new sort of aero bikes, the new road bikes, particularly 2019 bikes, are all looking pretty similar. But what what are your sort of views on on all of the way that the design element is going? Well, I mean, there's there's many obviously many different facets of of the bike industry. Where you, you take one end of the extreme, like downhill mountain biking, or road cycling or you know cyclocross or whatever but if we if we're going to focus for the time being on on road cycling because i think that's probably the most restricted area of development in in modern cycling in terms of the big brands because you know we've, we've got we've got the culture of these big grand tours right and to ride in these grand tours 
the brands want to have the best riders on their bikes. And those bikes have to be validated to a UCI standard. And I'm not going to get into bashing the UCI because I think they do many great things for the sport, but they do restrict development to some extent of, of modern road bikes. Now, if you look into mountain biking, that's less of an issue. If you look into triathlon, that's less of an issue. And, mm. you know, if you, if you look at the time trial bikes that get used in uh, the Grand Tours or any UCI event, they are a little bit behind, actually, in, in terms of aerodynamics compared to a, a triathlon bike. Because, but but that said, some of the time trial, uh, some of the triathlon bikes are, are pretty ugly. <laughs> so maybe well, they do it as a favour. Yeah, uh, that, but but you know, with with a mate with a, with a perspective like that, you could probably work the UCI. You, you probably think they're ugly because you're not used to them, and and that's why. I guess that's 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 the problem we have. That's why why we think they're ugly because they're abnormal to us because we're used to seeing UCI legal bikes and they all look not the same, but they're similar because UCI have basically a manual on how to design a bike or, or guidelines. It's like the FIA. I mean, kind of like the FIA doing in F1. I guess there are certain guidelines yeah. and parameters you have to meet uh, uh, to meet in terms of tube sizes, tube shapes. Now there's 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 a paragraph in that manual. It's it's a big booklet, and, and anyone can download it. It's on the UCI website, and it's in English. So there's no excuse not to read it. But it's it says something like the bike has to have a double diamond shape to preserve the like spirit and heritage of cycling. And I guess from from a follower point of view, if, if you know the bicycle is one of, one of the most iconic shapes in the world in history. Um, if you ask anyone to draw a bicycle, they'll probably draw a double diamond shape and it is iconic and some might argue that you know the bicycle is one of the the most important inventions in in the history of humankind in terms of efficient transport now i kind of get why they're trying to preserve that it's it's very important and it's important uh, uh, attracting children and, and younger people and people from all different walks of life into the sport and you know families transporting their goods and foods and groceries in rural african towns commuting on exactly not exactly but essentially the same engineering product as someone's racing in the tour de, tour de france it's got a double diamond shape and it's got wheels within a certain wheelbase and everyone knows cycling for what it is but ultimately it does restrict development a little bit and i guess that's why modern bikes are starting to converge to um i wouldn't say a pinnacle because i don't think we're at the pinnacle but they you know, once once you set out guidelines, it's like it's like in F one. It's it's um, diminishing returns when you get to a certain level of development. Uh, there's not much more you can do before yeah. you say, right, we've optimized the weight, we've optimized the aero, we've optimized the stiffness within the parameters. And I guess that's why these bikes are all starting to look the same. Now it's going to take a really bold manufacturer to come out with something different and that still meets the UCI requirements, uh, which kind of bucks the trend or or breaks the mold because they are converging to the same solution, essentially. And I don't, I don't think it's just one brand cop and the other. I think having worked in the bike industry for a bit and, and in, in frame builders, it is converging to kind of the most efficient solution now within the realms of, of carbon molding. Hence the similarity. So, uh, well, what about new products? Yeah. There's, there's talk, I've read articles in the last few months about new potentially materials that might change things. Or Have you heard much on that? Materials-wise... Don't think there's going to be that many breakthroughs uh, from from your regular carbon fiber epoxy composites. Um, we had a lot of noise a couple of years ago about graphene being pretty revolutionary. Yeah, graphene. graphene is um, 
it's a bit of a buzzword, I think, in, in terms of like production tech. It, it can be very good in, in like the chemical industry and in like rubbers and things like this. But in terms of bike frames, I don't think it's really done us many, many favors yet. Um, I still think carbon fiber epoxy composites is, is the best material for a bike, honestly, in terms of the stiffness and the weight. There is a big, big issue. Um, I'm not an expert on this, but I think there's a kind of a bit of an elephant in the room with, with carbon fiber bikes is, is there's a huge issue with them is that how do you recycle a carbon fiber bicycle? And I think it's a problem that we've kind of kicked down the curb a little bit or the, or the manufacturers are keeping quiet about because at some point in the future, there'll be loads of carbon fiber bicycles and we won't, we can't recycle them. I mean, not that I know of. And, and if anyone's anyone listening is is aware of how to re- recycle a carbon fiber bike, then then please let us know on the hub and and we'll start chatting about it. But I think it's going to be a big problem in the future. I mean, it's if you look at aluminium bikes or steel bikes, they're probably easier to or take less energy to recycle. And I think carbon fiber is actually it's a great material for making stuff, but recycling it, I think, is quite hard. And I think that's that's an issue that we need to face in the future. Yeah, I was completely unaware of that. So a material is just not not recycled at all, or it's just expensive to I mean, do. Or? Well, it, I say in the last fifty years, it's been seen as an exotic material to make aerospace and automotive parts from, and it's also, it's it's obviously lends itself to being quite low volume production. I mean, even making even making a carbon fiber bike frame is is quite a hands on intense process, I and mean, compared to something like. Uh, aluminium stampings or aluminium chassis that cars are made out of it's a very it's still a very low volume production process because it requires a lot of manual labor to lay lay out the carbon fiber so i don't think you know we're going to see graveyards of carbon fiber bikes like we might see in china of of like uh, aluminium sharing bikes for instance like they're not made in those numbers but the the more the the cheaper the material it's like with anything you know in, in history as it goes through development the cheaper the material comes and the improvements in the production processes as they happen, there'll naturally just be more and more of these things lying around in the future. And it goes goes for everything. It goes for like old computers, old mobile phones. You know, yeah, at one yeah. point, if you were, if you were, I know it's going to show your age, mate, but you know, when you were like forty in the eighties, um, and you had and you had your, you know your car phone, you thought you were a big dog, didn't you? But now, like, there's mobile phones everywhere, and, and the recycling market for mobile phones is massive. Yeah. So. I, it might go that way with bikes. It might not, but I, I'm not aware of of the recycling process. But I don't really think it exists, or it's not well established. Oh, there's a commercial opportunity there, then. So yeah, I mean that's that's a bit of a tangent about materials. Um, but coming back to the original question, I can't really see any massive breakthrough in materials um, compared to what we already have. So in terms of where road bikes are going, then you think it's going to be a case of someone's going to have to either push the barriers or the UCI are going to have to open their mind a little bit or well it's all it comes I think it comes back to being a big kind of like marketing hamster wheel um you've got to keep it going you've got to keep the guys in the Tour de France racing your bicycle to sell bicycles and I think the big the big manufacturers are really scared to release a bike that's going to be clearly faster and lighter that won't be able to race in the Tour de France. Okay. Uh, and I think it's going to take either a really bold move from one manufacturer to say, look, here's, here's our latest development. It's faster, it's lighter than, it's, you know, it's aerodynamically better than a UCI bike. Um, but this is what we can do. You know, they need to, and we, we see certain companies doing it with ultra light bikes. 
which are based on the same mold as the heavier 6.8 kilo one that rides in the torque. But it's going to take a bold move from a manufacturer to say, like, right, we're not making UCI bikes. All we're going to make is the best bikes we can make. And I think if you really asked any like head of development from any of the, the top top uh, maybe the top four bike brands, I think if you said, is this really the best bike you can make? Um, and they'd probably just say no. But you know, it's, there there are there are parameters, and and it is one of the beautiful things about cycling is that we can go and ride what. Uh, Chris Room or Egan Banal can ride and, and yeah. win on, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, whereas I, I can't go and buy Lewis Hamilton's Mercedes. No, exactly. Uh, and you can't drive. You know, we can go ride the same roads as them as well, which is part of the beauty of the sport. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And what about? Are you? Uh, do you buy into disc brakes? Have you? Have you got them? Do you like them? Well, that, that's that's a great topic actually, because as of January this year, I've, I've had disc brakes and. I come from like a mountain bike uh, background, so the disc brakes I've got on my road bike look like tiny little uh, saucers compared to the ones we used to have on my my mountain bike, which are like two hundred and three millimeters or something like that. But no, I, I completely buy into disc brakes, and I think anyone who bashes them openly clearly hasn't tried them very well in the wet. Um, I, look, I don't think they're I don't think they're essential, but I think I think they're great. I, I've still got my my rim brake bike, and there's something. You know, without sounding too soppy, there is something quite like romantic about that. It's very simple. I can chuck it in a bike suitcase. (laughs) (laughs) I I can chuck it in a bike suitcase and know that when I get to the other end, it's going to come out and be fine, right? Yeah. Um, It's a it's a a cable and a pulley. It's not going to go wrong. Whereas, you know, if I'm putting my my hydraulic disc brakes into a bike box and one of the hydraulic lines gets pinched or some air gets in, and I get to the other end and I'm in somewhere remote in Thailand or something, I'm not going to be there to have a bike shop bleed the brakes and it could just be a, you know, a bit of a mess. So I still, I still have a place in, in my heart for my rim brake bike. It's, it's lighter, it's simpler, uh, it's a bit more pure. But, you know, when we when you get caught in one of these uh, Asian uh, summer downpours, uh, I, I'm, I'm so happy to have the disc brakes so I'm not going to be able to stop. And I agree, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm relatively new to disc brakes as well, having not been overly fussed about about using them and, and I love them yeah. just the, the trueness of the braking but yeah. do, I mean what what opportunities within the wheel building side of things do you think that the rim uh, the disc brakes now potentially creates I mean where, where do you see wheels going in the next five or six seven eight years whatever well it's interesting you say that because one of the things the discs do for 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 rim design is they get rid of the problem of overheating the rim that you would with rim brakes so I've always hated carbon clincher rim brake rims because essentially it's a really bad material to heat up. You shouldn't really be braking on a carbon rim because the the epoxy goes it goes soft. It, it does go soft after a certain temperature, like 140, 160 degrees. And it's always been a bit of a, a dicey subject, really, of why we ever got into that stage of development where we were braking on basically epoxies that couldn't handle the temperature. Yeah. And it, 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 there hasn't, there's never been much safety margin built into those. Uh, those rim surfaces and I think a lot of wheel companies and rim companies are, are glad that you know discs are being adopted because they can their lawyers can finally relax knowing that they're not going to be sued because someone's blown their rim apart going down the going down an alpine descent because once you've got the disc in the middle you're heating up steel braking surface um, all that heat's coming out by radiation and you know the heat sinks in in the modern brake pads that we've got and stuff 
And it does open up the rim to be lighter. You don't have to have the reinforcement in, in the brake track in the rim. So I think from that respect, the discs, the discs are great. I think going forward in wheel design, now I'm a really keen wheel builder. As you know, I've, I've, I've built wheels for some of our teammates out here in, in Hong Kong. And um, yeah, I taught myself how to do it because I was sick of braking. Because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a heavy guy, I'm nearly 90 kilos. And I've got like a room full of widowed front wheels that... <laughs> Where I've, where I've basically broken the back wheel because they've just gone, they've just gone like so many spokes have snapped. I've just stopped rebuilding them. Yeah. So I got into wheel building and um, taught myself how to do it, and I started to build sort of like more solid wheel sets for me and like higher spoke counts and stuff. And it got me thinking, this is really old school. Like I'm building a wheel with like wire, okay. And if you look at classic cars from the sixties, they stopped cars stopped having wire wheels after about 1969. You know, you, you look at an old, an old uh, TR6 or MGB from the 60s or something, it might have had wire wheels. And then everything after that started to have cast alloy wheels. And if you had wire wheels, that was old school technology because they had to be trued, right? And you would break spokes. And essentially, we're still riding around on wire wheels for bikes. And it's quite a labor-intensive thing to build. You have to true them. You have to make sure the spoke tensions are still, still there. And... What were the developments of um, carbon molding in, in like the bike frame? I think, why aren't we seeing those developments in the wheels? Because when you develop a carbon bike frame, you have to develop it in maybe five or six different sizes. And that costs money. That's investment in the tooling. And let's say a five-size tooling program for a modern frame might cost 100,000 US dollars in a carbon supplier from Asia. But with a wheel, you only have to make one size. You have to make it 700C. Yeah. And when it comes out of the mold, it doesn't need any truing. Is, is that um, what lightweight have done? Well, lightweight is lightweight. Lightweight is different. They're still using spokes, but they're using carbon spokes. Carbon, so it's carbon spokes because you can't replace them. Yeah, you can't. I don't think. I mean, I'm not an expert on lightweight wheels, and actually, I'm not. An, I'm not completely sure how they tension the carbon spokes, but they do use a tensioned carbon spoke, which is bonded to the the rim and the hub. So they're still using a spoked wheel, but they're not using it in the traditional sense that it's it's a steel spoke with a nipple, but you know, if you look at if you look at tri-spoke wheels using TTs, that's that's the kind of thing I'm thinking of. Why aren't we seeing more complete monocoque wheels? Because we know they can be made light. We know they can be made strong enough. There is a slight problem in in carbon when sometimes you take things out of mold and they warp depending on the mold material and the carbon, the epoxy properties. Things can can warp a little bit. And actually, in frames, we tend not to worry about that because it's within the kind of tolerances of what we expect the frame to be in terms of the dropout. With a wheel, you're going to notice if it's warped because the wheel will have wobble in it. But I think my my kind of prediction in the next 20 years is we'll see a bit of a move towards monocoque wheels, full carbon wheels, not necessarily disc wheels. I'm talking about full carbon construction. So they'll still have spokes, whether they'll be tri-spoke, five-spoke, ten-spokes or whatever. But I I think it's just it's just less less labor to make it to make a monocoque structure than someone or a, or a machine lacing a wheel with steel spokes obviously the price is going to be high so the, the low the low end will still be steel spoke wheels but in terms of the high performance end i, I think there's probably and there are there are a few companies uh, i don't know where they're from but there are a few companies that you see on social media and stuff and especially in mountain biking that are making these full monocoque carbon wheels that just basically biking. come out oh, of interesting yeah yeah that's fascinating but i don't i don't think it's i don't think it's I don't think it's anytime soon. And going back to the UCI and their limitations, I mean, wow, it's going to be really hard to get that into UCI. But I 
yeah, just going back to the, the car analogy, we did away with spoke wheels 50 years ago. So we're still using them on bicycles. Don't know why. That's <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. And um, you are known particularly within our team as, as being quite a strong time trialist. Uh, in terms of bike geometry and fit and some of the train trends we've seen there, the, the what bike hoop guys, you, you actually know one of them from university days, don't you? Or the, the whole focus on, on aerodynamics has been, well, it's, it's been monumental. What, talk us through what your views and how the sort of average club TT person can make huge gains, be it through socks or position, or what's your general views on that? Because my experience sort of chatting to you is that you tend to pick up on things that a lot of us don't necessarily see as priorities or don't necessarily focus on, but you seem to think are where, where we should be starting to focus really. Um, well, yeah, just going back to the introduction of the, the Hoop Watt Bike team, um, I went to university with a guy called Daniel Bigham. He was a couple of years beneath me, I think, in terms of when we actually graduated. Yeah. And I think he, I think he, he was doing aerospace engineering. I, m- I might be wrong, but um, yeah, he was always a strong, a strong athlete. I think he started doing. He always started. He was when we when we were at university. He was he was a triathlete, a very strong triathlete, and then. He got into cycling and realized he was very good. I and mean, everyone realized he was very good quite quickly. He worked his way up through kind of the categories in, in the UK, UK crit racing and road races and stuff. And, and yeah, he's, he formed the, the track team or the trade team, which we now know as Hoop Watt Bike. And what they did is they, they went through everything very systematically. They looked, they, they kind of used a case study of British cycling and their track team and picked all the low-hanging fruit off them that they thought they could improve on with, with Dan's knowledge of engineering and aerodynamics. And it's amazing how far they came. And I don't think Dan will mind me saying this, but it's amazing how many stronger riders they beat in competition yeah. just by using their brains. Yeah, it's brilliant. Now, we saw, we, saw, we saw that with Graham Obrey, Chris Boardman. And again, coming back to powers that be, they were kind of punished for using their brains. And certain positions were banned. Certain methods of riding a bicycle were banned. And and where do you draw the line? Like the brain is part of the body. If you're using your body to power the bicycle, why not use the brain to power the bicycle, make it go faster in that way? And it is it's kind of the the it's a bit of a grey area. And I know that uh, Dan Bigham and his teammates have been battling the UCI quite hard to 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 get certain things through competition and. Well, they've got a new battle on their hands at the moment, haven't they? Because it looks like they're trying to ban trade teams. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's gone through. I think it has gone through. Yeah. So is it, is it as it from next year? Then they're not going to be allowed to ride the the World Cup circuit for the track. Yeah, which is uh, so they will just have national teams, which is which is is I think a massive step backwards for the sport, and they will tell you it's a big step backwards for the sport because it's if we look at the developments that have happened to the you know the average club time trialer like myself or you then we've learned a lot of things from that trade team that weren't public knowledge and they've, they've made it fun they've, they've stuck themselves on social media and they've engaged the average club rider like they've engaged you and yeah, I, I agree I, I think it's- the, national te- the national teams just don't do that and they've yeah. brought a load of people into time trialing exactly they brought a load of people into track cycling because they they were the underdog and if you if you ban that that i don't the uci will will, will have their reasons for, for banning it but who knows? But it's it's not. I don't think it's a good move for for cycling. I agree. It seems a regressive move. And um, if you haven't had the opportunity, what I'll do is I'll post their film, uh, the pursuit, 
in the show notes. It's, it's a fantastic watch, a brilliant documentary, and it's all, it's all sort of articulates this in a lot more depth in terms of what they've bought and their journey. And they're engaging guys as well. They're a good bunch of guys from Derby. They're really good, they're yeah. Great stories. Great film, actually. Really down for worth guys as well. Very, very clever. Yeah. Yeah. And and in terms of your 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 views on just generally on, on aerodynamics and time trialing, and it's something that I know you're quite passionate about. Yeah, I think... I mean, they, they say it's they say it's a purest form of cycling, isn't it? The time trial is just you against the clock. Uh, I, I I don't know about that. I, I think if you can get your head around it and become good at it, then it allows you to do it allows you to beat your teammates with less power than them. <laughs> That's why I like it because I know that there are guys in our club that have a higher FTP than me by quite some margin. But you know, if we have a little club TT, that I could probably do it by about a minute. Yeah. That's why I like it, because it gives everyone a bit of a chance. You know, I'm a big guy. I'm not the best climber. But if, if I can work on my position and work on my bike and, you know, I, I make little aero spaces for my for my bars and my cockpit and stuff, and if I can do a little bit here and there, then it's nice to be able to beat the guys that have more power than me. Um, and, they, you know, it's, it's like we can share the secrets around, but I need to be careful with sharing too many tips because they're going to start beating me again and I'll be back at the bottom of the pile. So uh, It's funny, though, you mentioned yeah, that because we're definitely seeing a change of – time trial position in the last few years within the world tour for example exactly. obviously coming up a little bit higher at the front end do you i mean i still find it bizarre when you you know we just had the tour de france you watch that and you, you still see sort of world-class riders in poor time trial positions I and mean, you must really pick up on that well it, it, it is obvious and I, I don't want to keep going back to the the train team of who walked by but you you can literally cor- correlate the improvements in world tour riders positions with their rise to fame in on the track yeah it's 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 too it correlates too well to be a coincidence and i know a lot of teams are hiring dan dan biggum from who what by to, to basically go and consult for them and sort their riders out sort the positions out do do oh, aero really? testing and do velodrome yeah do velodrome testing and uh, it's a service that he provides and you, you can definitely tell that the, the, the world tour riders of, of Dow sorting out the positions there. The coaches are, are learning more and more about aerodynamics. Like not every coach, not every even world tour team will have an aero expert. And we, we you know, you hear Wiggins on Eurosport talking about how the French teams never really wanted to do the TTs. It was just something they had to do. It was like a day off or they just believed that it was a pointless task and they never really gave it much thought. But now every team has to pay really huge yeah. amounts of attention to it because if they don't the, you know the time gaps in a 40k tt can be minutes and if you're talking of gc battles two minutes is uh is huge isn't it well so, just like for me uh, my childhood it, memory was uh miguel indra just a machine of a time trialist i'm trying to think back to his position Do you remember what his position was? Well, I, I, I think he was just i think it was a lot of it was just brute power wasn't it uh, i i'm gonna show my age here i'm not actually that sure um, what his I, position was like you were probably, probably, age, probably about 40 yeah, you were about 40 when he was winning so maybe you can elaborate but yeah I think we we, we, know, we know a lot more now and if you see the pros that haven't adapted it and they're still kind of ignorant to, to aerodynamics then it's a real shame because you can't just use it's not when there, when, there, when there are guys that know what they're doing in terms of aerodynamics you can't just use brute power anymore yeah. it doesn't work you, you can you can use extra 50 watts and you'll still be beaten by a smaller guy if you haven't got hold of the aerodynamics. Well, it's actually interesting you say that. I mean, you think if, going back to the tour that we just had and, and how close it was, I think everyone agrees is one of the most exciting tours for a long time. But mm-hmm. Alaphilippe's performance in that time trial 
firstly, it was exceptional in terms of the time across the line. But secondly, aerodynamically and, and position-wise, he wasn't the best by a long shot. And I think you could tell that. I mean, it's it's, diff- it's really difficult to say because looking at them on TV is one thing. And I, I do think the parkour of that stage, the profile of that stage really did did suit him. Okay. Um, in terms of the, the explosive little ramps and the climbs. And, but did, would you agree on that, though? Sure. Look, I mean, would, would you look at him and say there's probably some areas he can improve? Or I, th- I think I think there were they're guys that look like they have a best position than him. He, he had a, his head was quite high up and he didn't have it. He, he wasn't really adapting that high hands position, which is, is known to be faster. Yeah. Uh, but the, he, actually in UCI competition, there is, there is quite a stringent rule on the high hand position. You can't have the end of the extensions more than 10 centimeters higher than the middle of the arm pad. So actually, if you look at the, the fastest guys in the UK, for example, doing the club time trials, they aren't, tested on the UCI jig they go under CTT rules which allow you to be a lot more adventurous with your position and actually in UCI oh, racing yeah. there is a limit okay so I didn't know but, that now tell me you have to remind me the name yeah. of the guy who's been sort of taking every record in the UK at the moment yeah so the, so the guy setting the UK TT scene on fire for the last couple of years is a, is a Polish guy who lives in the UK he's called Marcin well Marcin Bielablocki yeah. and he used to ride for CCC when they were Sprandy Brandy Porkovice or yeah, something. And he's got some background. And, uh, right? I mean, I think he's had a top 10 finish in the world time trial, hasn't he? Or yeah, I think in, in one of the worlds in the TT, he was top 10. Yeah. I can't remember what year or where it was. But no, he's, he's, a, great, he's a great all-round rider. And he, he does race road races as well. But so I don't really know why he was never taken on full-time. Well, he was taken on full-time. But I don't know why he didn't get another contract after that. Because if you look at his his time trials and his, his power profiles, what he's been doing recently, it's just... It's baffling the amount of power and the speed that he can ride at, even his 100-mile TT performances. I mean, 100-mile TT performances, and he's averaging like 30 miles an hour, 50 k's an hour, or something not far off that. It's, it's absolutely baffling. And Mind-boggling. He's, it's, it's funny because his position, it's not far off being UCI legal, and there's not something massively illegal about his position if you were to put him into a TT position. He's, he might have to drop the extensions a little bit to become legal. But yeah, it's it's nothing radically different from what you could achieve if you were racing a UCI event. And why he hasn't been taken on with a proper with a proper team uh, or even a Conti team, I, I don't know. But yeah, there's if you want to look at how to ride a TT and, and master your position, go on to timetrialingforum.co.uk. And that is just a, a rabbit hole of, of nerdiness in, in TTs. And I think... I think the UK is the kind of the, the the club ten in the UK is you know what it's like it's, it's almost like a Sunday cricket match now it's 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 a thing isn't it it's a well, it's a thing and someone told me the re- the history behind it and and if I'm incorrect or correct please do drop us a note at contact at unbound.cc to let us know but I understand that that many years ago road racing was banned in the UK. Uh, yeah, so that's why we didn't see so many competitive British cyclists on the continent, and that's why we see saw this huge growth on the time trial scene. Time trial. Yeah, with all the with yeah, all the road code names, which were all obviously in code because of to get round to legal reasons, and that's the reason, and that's the historic reason I understand why why there is such a established time trial scene here in the UK. Well, I didn't know that. I, yeah, I always wondered why they had those funny code names for the route. I taught you something today, mate. But yeah, it, <laughs> you did indeed. It's it's a uh, it's an I think for every club, it's an institution now. And it come sort of May 
May time throughout the summer when the, when you've got all the light in the evenings, the, the club 10TT is a bit of an institution. It, we we do it here in Hong Kong in our team. We have we have a well, we have an 18k, so it's it's just over 10 miles. But it's it's a great way of getting people together and you know finding their strengths and weaknesses. And it's it's quite a, I, I guess a low risk kind of racing, isn't it? Because you're not in a bunch. The, the risk of crashing is low, and it's attractive if you can get hold of the technical side of it. It's a really attractive form of racing because you can control most of the variables yeah. whereas if you're in a road race or a crit i mean you can be the strongest rider in the pack but if you get taken out on the first corner of the first lap it's uh you know it's four weeks off the bike or whatever and um your morale just goes through the floor so that's that's why i like tt very good and tell us where where is your favorite place in the world to cycle favorite place for me to cycle uh does it have to be somewhere i've been <laughs> Because I can think of many places I'd like to go, which would become... Okay, higher, higher up uh, the to-do list. Where, where do, where's on the to-do list? To-do list would be Norway, because I have my ancestors from Norway. Okay. And kind of Arctic Circle in, in the summer would be quite right, cool. Well, we've got some Norwegians on the hub, so we should certainly I know. make that happen for you. Yeah. Uh, but favourite place I, I've ridden... Would, uh, it sounds really boring, mate, but it'd probably be the Costa Blanca in Spain, right? Near Calpe or, or Denia, place you we know do, really We've well. talked about this many a time, yeah. It's become very popular since because we used I, to go there. Well, yes, yeah, so I've just spent many uh, many Christmases and, and many, actually, many summer holidays there. Even when I was a little boy with my family, we used to go there for holiday. And then, you know, the last five, ten years, I used to ride there a lot. And you see... You can, you, you can go out there on, on a you know, January winter's day and the Christmas holidays or whatever. And you'll see Tom Dumoulin and, and the boys roll past you and, and they'll wave at you and it, there's no cars. And it's quite, a, it's quite a good place to watch the Vuelta. I think in the last 10 years, the Vuelta has probably been through five times or something like that as an average. And you often see racing there in the summer. I think this year, the Vuelta is going through the Costa Blanca again. And it's just, for me, it's an eclectic, an eclectic place to ride when I hear, even if I'm just riding there in the summer and I hear you know, a helicopter or something. It reminds me of the Welter. It reminds me of a Grand Tour. It reminds me of racing. And it's, yeah, the roads aren't the best. The climbs aren't the longest. The scenery's not the best compared to somewhere like the Alps or the Dolomites. But I guess it's all about how comfortable you feel riding. Yeah, it's funny. I think Abdullah last week said something similar. He said Italy, actually. And I've just just had the weekend riding in Italy. And it's, it's a wonderful place to ride the bike. But I think when you're back in Europe, I now pine for, well, not I don't pine for, but uh, certainly there's some great places in Asia to ride. And next week, we've got David Lloyd from fellow Vietnam on the podcast. Vietnam, yeah. And this, Someone we've both raced against a very, good, a very good rider and <laughs> fantastic riding to be done in, in Vietnam. But also he's coming on to talk to us about his new event, which is a 10-day race called The Frontier, which sounds, well, brutal, but spectacular and uh, a real a real challenge as well. So I look forward to chatting to him about that. Sure. Right, my friend, it's probably probably time that we, we look to wrap things up. Uh, is, there, is there anything else I've missed? I, I tend to go off on a segue. No, I don't think so. I, I think we better wrap it up now before everyone's bored to tears through numbers and what savings. Well, I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I always enjoy your take on the science and engineering side of things. And I'd love it if we get you back on again. And if anyone's got any sort of specific questions for Alex just around aerodynamics or, or frame building or design or, or anything that we've discussed today, you can find him on the Unfound app and he'll be on there. We'll link him to the show notes as well. He's more than happy to, to talk stuff through. But Alex, let's get you back on Absolutely, here, mate. Yeah. Another chat sometime soon. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's uh, well, very thanks for having me. And uh, like, like you said, if if people with any little comments at all, just anything, let's let's get a, let's get a bit of a chat going, a debate going. On, on keep... Let's follow it up. Let's definitely follow absolutely. it up. Brilliant. All right, mate. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, cool. we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Jules. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. And more importantly, don't forget to download the Unfound app and join cyclists from around the world on the hub. We'll see you on there.